This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome to this week's edition of America's Voice for Energy. I'm Marita Noon, and each week I have the opportunity to write an energy-themed column, usually based on the news of the day. This week my column is titled, Why Waste Food to Replace Something We Already Have Too Much Of? It's basically about the renewable fuel standard, also known as the ethanol mandate. I've written on this topic time and time again, but the reason I wrote on it this week is that on May 18th, the EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency, released their uh, figures of how much ethanol needed to be blended into the nation's fuel supply for 2017. So that made this this week's news topic. In doing my research, as I do every week for my column, I discovered that there's a new bill in Congress, and we're going to talk to the primary author of that bill in a later segment, uh, that's designed to kind of update that renewable fuel standard that was passed in 2005 and then enhanced, expanded in 2007. But, you know, one of the reasons that we as a country went for this ethanol mandate, as we call it, is that it was supposed to reduce CO2 emissions, therefore helping uh, the climate change concerns. Our first guest today is John DeChico, and John is a research professor at the University of Michigan's Energy Institute, and he'll be unique here on America's Voice for Energy in that he's a mechanical engineer by background, and he's worked in the uh, transportation side of the energy space since the 90s, but he comes from the green side uh, of issues and approaches the concern with ethanol from that perspective. So it's going to be great to hear what John has to say with us today. So, John, thanks for joining us on America's Voice for Energy. You're welcome. It's great to be here, Marita. Well, thank you so much. And, you know, I discovered you because uh, you were quoted in an article about a hearing that was held on, on Congress, in Congress on the Hill back in March. And uh, you, were, you, you were cited as saying that you felt that ethanol not only did not reduce CO2 emissions, but actually increased CO2 emissions by as much as 70%. Is that correct? That's right. That's right. So, tell, you know, tell us, how did you come up with these numbers? What's the story there? Sure. Well, one of the most important things to keep in mind about biofuels that has gotten lost in the discussion is that um, carbon is the fuel of life, and whenever you burn or consume uh, something that has carbon in it, whether it's gasoline or ethanol, which has carbon in it, all organic materials have carbon in them, uh, CO2 gets released. And so... When we burn calories in our body, we burn carbos. Uh, the carb in those carbos turns into CO2. Uh, when we burn gasoline or ethanol in our car, the carbon in those fuels also turns to CO2 and goes out the tailpipe. And so uh, chemistry 101, a perspective on this issue, is that 
if biofuels have a benefit with respect to CO2, it's not when they're burned, clearly. Now, what's happened over the years is uh, people, in fact, a lot of well-meaning scientists and so on, thought that, well, just because the carbon in a biofuel like ethanol comes from plants that were recently grown and therefore sucked CO2 out of the air, which is what all plants do when they grow, that it balanced out the CO2 at the tailpipe in contrast to what happens with uh, regular gasoline where the carbon comes from petroleum that's been deep underground for millions of years. So uh, that was the simple logic. But they, when they, people thought that way, they said, well, we don't have to count the CO2 that comes out the tailpipe when you burn ethanol. We don't have to count it you know, if you burn, say, biodiesel. Um, but the CO2 comes out the tailpipe just the same. So I, in, in my research, said, well, wait a minute. How do we know for sure that the CO2 is being balanced out? And the only way you know for sure is to go back to the land and check whether the land, the farmland, where you're growing the corn to make the ethanol or the soybeans to make the biodiesel, whether that land is removing more CO2 than it would otherwise be removing. And that's the rub. That's okay, what okay, other so wait, wait. I'm not, I'm not a scientist. Okay. So you lost me on whether the land is going to remove more CO2 with a corn crop for ethanol than it would, let's just say, if it had weeds on it? Well, it's not so much weeds. <laughs> it's well, I'm just, the corn you know. field was already there. In other words, what's happened with ethanol in this country is we, we planted a bit more corn, mostly at the expense of other crops, but the vast majority of the corn we use for ethanol comes from cornfields that were already growing corn to use for food. You know, actually, okay. most, a lot of it goes to cattle feed, of course, but then, you know, right. corn goes to the cows, and then we eat the cows, and then we exhale right. the CO2. So um, what's happened as we expanded this ethanol mandate at the behest of Congress, uh, about 40% of our corn harvest now goes into ethanol. So we didn't expand our land for cropland by nearly that much. We, we expanded it only on the margins, actually. What's happened is we've taken corn that used to, say, all go to cattle feed, and we've now diverted it to ethanol. So you go to that same cornfield out there, and the question becomes, is that cornfield this year, say when you're using the corn to make ethanol, pulling more CO2 out of the air as it grows than it did last year when the corn was going to cattle feed or tortillas or, you know, right. corn whiskey, <laughs> whatever. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and the answer is no, by and large, no. And that is where the government went wrong with their computer models. Interesting. They failed to check whether or not the cornfield or whatever, or the cropland was actually pulling more CO2 out of the air. And by and large, it's not. If the the, the soil where this corn is being grown was just plain dirt, no weeds, no corn, nothing. It was their dirt. 
Yeah, then, which of course there isn't any there. That's right. You would then be pulling more CO2 out of the air that could balance out your tailpipe, but that's not what's happening. So you did you did differently, I guess, from what some people refer to as a life cycle study. That's right. It turns out that the life cycle studies, which are sometimes called carbon footprinting studies, carbon footprints, um, it turns out that scientifically they're the wrong way to account for CO2 emissions. And the reason they're wrong is because they fail to look at what's actually going on on farms, on the farms that grow the crops that we use to make. Okay, you're fascinating. So we're going to run out of time, I can tell. So I want to steer us back sure. to, um, you know, you, your, your figure of 70% that ethanol actually releases or has a CO2 impact yep. that is 70% greater than traditional gasoline. Is that, have right. I got that as correct? As much as that. It depends on the details. Where that number comes from is I did a reanalysis of a study of an ethanol plant in Illinois that had well-documented data. So I got the data, and I reanalyzed it to check about the CO2 being pulled out of the air on the farmland. And I compared it to whether or not there was a crop rotation, because, you know, people typically rotate corn and soybeans. So I, you have to pay mm -hmm. attention to all those details. And what I found is that for the case where there isn't a rotation, uh, if you're just using corn that was already being grown, then and you add up all the excess emissions that it takes to make ethanol, because making ethanol produces a lot more pollution than making gasoline, that's where you get that 70% increase in emissions. Okay, so we're down to just like three minutes left here, and I, like I said, it's, you're fascinating, so I, I hate that we're going to run out of time, but we are. So... You were, you were testifying on Capitol Hill, and yep. it was brought up that this most recent study that you have done is uh, funded by the American Petroleum Institute and therefore perhaps should be discredited. What's your response to that? And my second question, again, because we're going to run out of time, mm -hmm. is how have your green friends responded to this? Well, um, on the first question, uh, this is uh, hard science that I'm doing, uh, and it's independent of, of the funding. The basic um, results and the basic analysis that I did that have led me for many years now, not just recently, to claim that biofuels are worsening CO2 emissions and making them better was done before I had the funding from the American Petroleum Institute. In fact, it started when I was working professionally uh, for an environmental organization. I, sp I spent mm -hmm. 20 years as a uh, green group um, scientist. And so, um, you know, I, I'm on record about being opposed to the mandate from before the time it was passed. So okay. uh, the fact that I, in this particular case I'm funded by the American Petroleum Institute is really immaterial to my findings. So okay. on the second question, um, what's happened with this uh, biofuel debate is that it's, it's really caused a rift in the green community. Now, mind you, some environmentalists, like myself included, were skeptical of this uh, all along. 
But then a lot got on the biofuel bandwagon back in the post-9-11 era when everyone was worried that we're going to run out of oil and oil is evil and all that kind right, of right. nonsense. Uh, they got on the bandwagon, and they didn't check the math properly. And it was like, we're going to team up with the corn lobby to try to displace petroleum. And well, I mean, so it makes of, sense. It makes sense in a in a in an uneducated way. It makes sense. Well, it, I, I wouldn't want myself to say they're uneducated. I think they um, were perhaps smarter than they actually were. Thought they were smarter than they were actually were. Again, it's it's sad. It was, I think, a failure to um, have done due diligence about the carbon accounting, which is what I was just talking about before. So, um, you know, I think they're. Uh, different parts of the green community react differently to my work. Uh, some ha have been supportive of it, um, and others are kind of scratching their heads and not saying much because it's challenged their conventional view. Yeah. John, we are, we are out of time. I am so sorry because you're just absolutely fascinating. We're going to talk again. Real quick, tell people how they can read your most recent blog post on your EPA decision opinion. Sure. My, my blog is simply carsclimate.com. Uh, just carsclimate.com. Yep. And so uh, my most recent post uh, addresses these new standards that came out on, on May 18th, and I have other posts on that blog explaining you know, some of the science behind this issue. Thank you so much for your time. You're just fascinating. I'm sure we'll talk again. Stay tuned, and we'll be right back on America's Voice for Energy. The United States Justice Foundation, since 1979, has been dedicated to instructing, informing, and educating the public on legal issues confronting America. That means you and me. When necessary, this nonprofit organization has had to litigate to present the constitutional view. Since 1980, USJF has submitted testimony to the U.S. Senate on all but one U.S. Supreme Court nominee. Learn more about USJF by visiting their website at www.usjf.net. Support this nonprofit as it defends our rights, our liberty, and our Constitution. Don't be hoodwinked by the left who wants you to believe the fairy tale that we can power America on butterflies, rainbows, and pixie dust. I'm Marita Noon. Get the truth about energy on my show, America's Voice for Energy, only on America's Web Radio. Affordable health insurance was the promise of Obamacare, but for many, the government mandate caused more problems than it solved. This is Dr. Elena George from Medicine on Call. And I want to tell you about a truly affordable alternative allowed under Obamacare, Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare bypasses doctor and hospital panels, giving you the freedom to choose. And with a maximum of $500 out-of-pocket per person and 100% coverage up to $1 million per year per occurrence, you can rest assured knowing you and your family are protected. Coverage starts as low as $107 per month and also includes dental, vision, pharmacy, and holistic care. Liberty HealthShare puts you back in charge of your health. Visit them online at libertyoncall.org. Again, for a true affordable alternative to Obamacare, visit libertyoncall.org or call toll-free 1-800-714-6993 today. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. 
Welcome back to America's Voice for Energy. Today we're talking about the EPA's decision regarding the blending requirements for the renewable fuel standard for 2017, which is a little bit complicated for the average person to understand, but in short it means adding more ethanol to less gasoline. And to talk to us about that in this segment, I'm happy to have with us from the American Petroleum Institute, the downstream director, director Frank Macchiarola. So Frank, I think this is your first time to be with us on America's Voice for Energy. I hope it won't be your last, and I'm delighted to have you with us today. Well, I'm glad to be here. Thanks for having me, Marita. So, you know, the, the renewable fuel standard uh, has been a topic of discussion. I wrote on it um, a few months back during the Iowa primaries when Ted Cruz uh, boldly stood up, first time any candidate of either party has ever done that, to the Iowa ethanol lobby and said we need to repeal the renewable fuel standard. Uh, Donald Trump, the now uh, Republican nominee or presumptive Republican nominee, uh, did not stand up to to the uh, Iowa ethanol lobby. So it will be interesting to see what happens. But Congress is looking at, at doing something at it, and, you know, they have brought this up many times, as I addressed in my column with Ted Cruz. He supported a full repeal of the RFS, which I don't think is really likely to happen, but certainly reform. And I quoted you in my column as saying that you were calling on Congress to repeal or significantly reform the IRS, saying that members on I, did I just say IRS, RFS, anyway, and that you said members on both sides of the aisle agree this program is a failure, and uh, you were stepping up your call on, on Congress to act. So tell us about that. Sure. So the, the recent proposal from the EPA really highlights the fact that, that this is a broken policy. Uh, it's outdated, and it needs to be reformed significantly. And so what we're saying is, we need a legislative solution here. Uh, and when we say significant reform, what we're, what we're calling on Congress to do is to, first off, you know, if they can repeal uh, the program, that would be terrific. But we understand that legislative compromise uh, sometimes uh, dictates that you can't go and get your 100% of your priorities. So what we're saying is significant reform uh, is necessary and, and what that means is 9.7% of ethanol in the, in the fuel mix, uh, it, it, the mandate must be capped at 9.7. Uh, and how do you come up with that number? I noticed that that's what the bill that we're going to talk to Representative Flores in, a, in another segment about uh, has that figure. How do we come up with that figure? So what we're concerned about is if you get uh, – uh, ethanol blends higher than that figure, you uh, essentially breach what's called the blend wall. And breaching the blend wall uh, means that you now have ethanol in the fuel mix that uh, that may have disruptive, uh, that may be disruptive to the marketplace. And what do I mean by that? Well, first off, uh, CBO has said that the use of higher ethanol blends could lead to potential price impacts for the consumer of up to 26 cents per gallon at the pump. Um, but it's not just the potential cost impact that we're concerned about. We're also 
concerned about these higher blends and the impact that they have on uh, on automobiles. So the AAA has said that uh, ninety approximately ninety percent of the cars on the road today uh, are not uh, compatible, uh, and thus uh, the auto warranties uh, could be void on these cars uh, yeah. with these higher ethanol blends. Um, and so for, it, it's really a twofold concern. One, it's the cost to the consumer, but second, it's the impact on the automobile. Yeah, in my book, Energy Freedom, I wrote a whole chapter. I wrote the book about six years ago. It's a little bit old now, but um, I, in my book, I wrote a whole chapter on ethanol, and as a part of that, I interviewed, uh, when I was writing that chapter, I interviewed uh, a guy who owns, a, you know, basically lawnmower repair shop, small engine repair shop. I interviewed him for, for that chapter, and he told me really horror stories about what ethanol does to small engines, and uh, I understand it does similar things to marine, marine engines, and he said he has, he's had to tell people that he won't warranty his work if they leave leave their weed eater, for example, with ethanol in it. Yeah, I, I mean, you hear these concerns from, from a lot of different groups and a lot of uh, folks who are reliant on uh, affordable and reliable fuels for either the businesses they run or for their personal use. Um, but I think, it's, I think it's important to, to back up and look at why the mandate exists in the first place. Okay. Uh, about, about a decade ago, you know, Congress passed this, this mandate, and at the time, we, we were really in, in a situation of uh, essentially energy scarcity in the United States. We were, our production uh, was at below 6 million barrels per day of, of crude oil here in the United States, and, you know, th there was a real sense uh, among uh, experts that we were a declining producer uh, and that right. we would be reliant on foreign sources of energy, and we would be a, uh, an importer of energy. I mean, fast forward today, and, and that really was the impetus, really. So, so folks got together and said, well, we could have this homegrown fuel uh, for transportation use. But, you know, fast forward a decade later, and, and you know, the, the, we've had a transformational shift in energy. And you, you know this, having spent time in New Mexico, uh, we, we're now uh, a a leading producer, the leading producer of natural gas, uh, and a leading producer of oil, and the United States is now in a, in a posture of energy abundance. And so we really need to revisit this policy, and members of Congress who haven't revisited this policy during this decade need to take a close look at it and say, even if I thought it was uh, something that was of benefit a decade ago, has the changing dynamic in our energy landscape, should that cause me to revisit my view on this position? And, and we think it should. We think the yeah. evidence now shows that this is an outdated and broken policy and needs to be significantly reformed. Yeah, and when I, when I started out to write my column this week on this very topic, um, I, I was unaware of the bill that has been introduced on May 10th with a bipartisan group of uh, representatives. I was unaware of that bill until I started doing research for writing the column, so I was encouraged to see that we have uh, a new bill uh, on the table. 
Well, we're we're very encouraged as well. I mean, the, the, the good part about the bill is it incorporates our ideas on significant reform. Uh, so it does set that 9.7% cap that I was talking about. Um, it also urges EPA uh, to meet their deadlines uh, to provide a greater level of certainty. As I've often commented about the RFS, the only thing that's certain about the RFS is the uncertainty. Well, this <laughs> yeah. provides a measure of certainty that says, you know, EPA, you must meet your statutory deadlines in getting these rules out. And, and if you don't, we're going to revert back to the previous year's volumes. But but the big point in that legislation is is the is the cap to prevent us from breaching the blend wall. Um, and and the reason we're excited about it too is is that it it has strong bipartisan support. So it's Congressman Flores, uh, who's been a champion for the industry and a Republican from Texas, but also the original co-sponsor. Uh, from Vermont, Peter Welch is a, is a Democrat, uh, strong support in the environmental community, um, somebody who understands uh, the importance of bringing in Democrats onto this uh, onto this bill. And what, what we're going to do now, I mean, we, we had in the House last year 185 congressmen write to the EPA and say, you can't breach the blend wall as you uh, draft this, this rulemaking on the RFS. Now we're going to go to those, those members and say, look, this is a great way uh, to, this, this bill is, is, is a great way to, to, to move legislation that, that targets exactly what you were writing about in your letter to EPA. So we think we're going to get a lot of support for it. Uh, we, ho- we hope to get some legislative momentum, and then we hope that uh, the Senate will act similarly. Similarly. <laughs> yeah, well, of course, that's always a challenge, getting the House and the Senate to act similarly and then trying to get President Obama to sign it. What do you think? Is he apt to sign such such a legislation? Um, well, I, you know, I don't want to I don't want to uh, prejudge what the administration is going to do, uh, except to say uh, I don't I, I think that the administration has been tasked with implementing an existing law and they've done that on the RFS. But they haven't been champions on the issue uh, one way or the other. Uh, I think they have plenty of other energy issues that they're mainly focused on. And so I think if we make our case to the administration, and I think if Congress, uh, through overwhelming bipartisan support, uh, sends a a bill to to the president uh, reforming the RFS, uh, you know, we're encouraged by by the prospects. Well, especially with the reports that it does not uh, achieve the CO2 emissions that um, the administration is so focused on. Well, I think that's, I think that's why you, you've seen uh, a good deal of, uh, of opposition to, to the mandate from a, lot of, uh, from a number of environmental groups. Uh, they, don't, they don't believe... Uh, that the mandate itself has achieved the kinds of environmental benefits uh, that Congress envisioned when they passed it in 2007. Uh, I think part of that has been the fact that you've seen uh, a slower progression in the technological breakthroughs on advanced and cellulosic ethanol. Yeah, I was going to bring that up. We've just got about a minute and a half left, but I was going to ask you to address 
that advanced? Does the, the does this bill take that whole advanced biofuel component away? Uh, no, it, no, it doesn't. It, it it still allows for the ability of uh, the marketplace to work in uh, advanced biofuels, and it allows for uh, advanced to to qualify for the mandate, if you will. But getting back to this to this issue of uh, of environmental benefits. You know, I think backing up and taking a more broader view of our energy policy, you know, we've had a 20-year low in reductions in, in carbon emissions. And really the, the result of that hasn't been mandates or it hasn't been restrictions. What it's been is uh, technological innovation from the private sector. You've had right. two advancements in the oil and gas industry, hydraulic fracturing, and advancements in horizontal drilling that have unlocked unconventional natural gas production, which has led to dramatic increases in the use of natural gas and power generation, which has brought us these tremendous reductions in GHG emissions. And yeah. so, you know, when a lot of people talk about environmental solutions, uh, they really should take a look at the shale gas revolution in the oil and natural gas industry and the advancements that we've had in providing those solutions for reducing carbon emissions. Yeah. Frank, we're out of time. I'm so sorry we could continue on talking about this forever. As I always like to say, I want to talk about energy longer than anyone wants to listen. But uh, we're up against a hard break. Frank Macchiarola, Downstream Director from the American Petroleum Institute. Thanks for joining us today on America's Voice for Energy. Affordable health insurance was the promise of Obamacare. But for many, the government mandate caused more problems than it solved. This is Dr. Elena George from Medicine on Call. And I want to tell you about a truly affordable alternative allowed under Obamacare, Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare bypasses doctor and hospital panels, giving you the freedom to choose. And with a maximum of $500 out-of-pocket per person and 100% coverage up to $1 million per year per occurrence, you can rest assured knowing you and your family are protected. Coverage starts as low as $107 per month and also includes dental, vision, pharmacy, and holistic care. Liberty HealthShare puts you back in charge of your health. Visit them online at libertyoncall.org. Again, for a true affordable alternative to Obamacare, Visit LibertyOnCall.org or call toll-free 1-800-714-6993 today. Who is or what is USJF? It is a nonprofit legal organization founded to protect our rights through the U.S. Constitution. Active in educating the public, USJF has also contributed directly and indirectly to legal defense efforts in many celebrated cases involving fundamental conservative principles. Cases of note include the Mount Soledad Cross case, the Arizona Immigration Law case, the Obama eligibility cases, the NDAA illegal detention issue, and many more. Help this nonprofit as they help you. Visit www.usjf.net today. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to America's Voice for Energy. In our last segment, we were talking with Frank Macchiarola from the American Petroleum Institute, who has called for, as I wrote in my column this week, action from Congress to revise the Renewable Fuel Standard, the RFS. 
And so I'm pleased to have with us in this segment uh, Congressman Bill Flores from Texas, who is uh, the lead author, if I understand correctly, on a new bill introduced May 10th in Congress. So, uh, Representative Flores, it's great to have you with us today on America's Voice for Energy. Marita, it's great to join you to have a conversation about this important topic. And I think you and I met when I was on the Hill fighting to have the export the uh, oil export ban lifted. And you know, I worked, I wrote a lot on that particular topic, was on the Hill several times, and uh, worked real hard to get that bill lifted and was pleased when it finally happened through the omnibus spending bill. Much like that, um, I've written many, many times on that the, the, the renewable fuel standard, the RFS, also known as the ethanol mandate, needs to be updated. And frankly, when I went to do my research for this week's column based on the EPA's uh, announcement of the 2017 uh, requirements last week on May 18th, um, I, I was unaware of your bill, and I was so excited to find it. In fact, I wrote on Facebook, I've just found a nugget that's going to make my writing easier, so I'm very excited about this bill. Uh, do you think that kind of like lifting the oil export ban, this is something whose time has come? Absolutely, I do. It's a common-sense approach to dealing with what's become a very thorny issue for America's consumers and also for those who supply the uh, fuel for America's consumers. Um, if you go back to the 2007 uh, law that set the uh, that changed the renewable fuel standards, um, Congress, in its infinite lack of wisdom, uh, didn't base their their mandates on actual expected gasoline volumes. And so what's happened is, is that the, is the gasoline sales have flattened and even declined a couple of times over the the uh, nine years since the passage of, of the Energy Act in 2007. And, but unfortunately, the renewable fuel standard keeps trying to jam in higher and higher amounts. And so you've got an unworkable solution. It's raised the cost of our food. It's caused problems with small engines. Uh, it's caused problems with, uh, with older vehicles that don't have engines that are capable of running on ethanol. So we've tried to come up with a market-braced approach that's common sense to deal with this challenge. Yeah, it seems like your bill uh, does that. As you mentioned, one of the big problems is that the, the way the original bill was set up, it, re it assumed we were always going to use more and more gasoline, and therefore it required, but in, in today's world, it requires ever-increasing amounts of ethanol into less and less gasoline, and uh, so your bill seems like a good solution. Can you explain how that solution works? Well, essentially how this works is it, uh, it relies on real projected gasoline demand. And so the, the law, the, under our bill, the EPA would turn each year to the EIA, the Energy Information Agency, and ask them to produce an expected gasoline um, demand projection. And then the EPA would take that demand projection and, and set its, its ethanol mandates or renewable fuel mandates at a level no higher than 9.7% of the projected gasoline demand. And that would keep the refiners from having to, to go above what's called the blend wall, this 10% cap, above which uh, small engines and legacy vehicles begin to have problems with their engines. Now, the good thing about this law is to the extent that somebody wants to buy um, E30 or E85 or a high blend, other high, type of high blend of ethanol, it doesn't prevent that. 
but it also allows the option of somebody that saves wanting to fuel their their lawn equipment with E zero. Uh, in other words, just straight gasoline, they'll have the option to do that. So it allows the market to work. And if the market says, hey, we want more ethanol, this bill won't stop that. It'll let that happen. But it, it relies on the market to work, not not the EPA trying to jam these fuels into the American marketplace. What a concept. Really? <laughs> it's almost too simple. Just amazing, just amazing that uh, Congress would come up with something like that. Now, what about, what does your bill do with, like, the cellulosic ethanol and those, those advanced biofuels that science has literally not been able to produce in uh, commercial quantities? I've written many times a lot on what I call Obama's green energy crony corruption scandal, and a piece of that has been Abengoa, which I'm sure you're familiar with, Bill, but it grieves me that Abengoa has, the failure of Abengoa has not gotten a lot of press coverage, but part of its failure was a cellulosic uh, biofuel plant in Kansas that, that was heralded as the, the big success of the future that's now bankrupt. Right, right. What this law does, this let me say this. If you look at, for instance, the newest EPA numbers that came out uh, for uh, the newest renewable fuel um, mandates, it, it puts in uh, mandates for <clears throat> non-traditional um, types of, of ethanol, in other words, not, not corn-based ethanol, uh, that can't be met by the market today. What our bill does is says to the extent that these fuels become technologically and economically available, uh, that they will have, um, that th those numbers won't be counted against the 9.7%. So in other words, we, the bill assumes that all of those fuels will be available to be blended into the nation's gasoline supply. So, But it doesn't, it doesn't require, it doesn't require a certain ratio of cellulosic no. biofuels. It just no, says it that can be part of how this mix is meant. Correct. So it's, it's okay. basically says total renewable fuels will be 9.7% of expected gasoline demand, and then the market sets how much of it comes from, uh, the, well, let's say this, the markets and technology and the economics so the underlying fuels will determine how much of it makes it into the fuel supply as part of that 9.7%. So today it's mostly corn. Uh, you know, three years from now, it could be say elastic. It, this doesn't mandate that one way or the other. It lets okay. it, it lets yes. it lets some free market work. Because I know a lot of taxpayer money has gone into cellulosic biofuel programs, trying to prop up an industry that apparently, by science and technology, just is not there yet. That's correct. That's correct. And so, and so uh, unfortunately, what the federal government is doing is it's spending a lot of time on applied research and on commercialization. And I think what where the federal government does a good job is in basic research, and that is go find a, a solution, but then to let the free market take it from there. Instead, the federal government has tried to move downstream into uh, applied and, and commercialization, and it's just utterly fallen on its face in doing that with taxpayer dollars. Yeah, because if it's a great concept, as we've seen with horizontal drilling and hydraulic fracturing, that's a great concept. And, uh, you know, innovation in the industry has continually improved those technologies. If it's a great idea, the 
the industry will fall all over itself to make it happen. That's correct. That's correct. And so the federal government should limit its expenditures in this area to basic research where scientists actually go find the solution and then the then free enterprise can take it from there. Yeah. So what do you see as the um, the likelihood for success of this bill? You've got six co-sponsors currently. Am I correct on that? Well, we actually have more uh, than that. Those are the six original co-sponsors uh, okay. that helped me when we put the bill together. And we are moving beyond that to try to get additional co-sponsors. My hope is to get several dozen, and then we can get a schedule for a committee uh, hearing and a committee markup. I'm, I'm hopeful uh, by the summertime. And then, um, with any luck at all, we, we can get onto the floor before the election. That would be my hope. And, and, but it won't make it to, to the Senate before the election, you don't think? Uh, well, we're, we're looking to some, uh, a couple of individuals in the Senate to introduce a companion piece of legislation in the Senate right now uh, so that okay. we can accelerate that process. And I, I don't but, have an update for you on that right now, but give us some time, and we'll and maybe in a couple of weeks we can have another conversation and give you an update. But you're feeling overall in your communication with your colleagues, you're feeling optimistic about, about getting this bill through? I feel pretty good about it. I will tell you there is some resistance from um, some farm state Democrats and some farm state sure. Republicans that that are tied to the the corn lobby. And look, this doesn't this doesn't hurt their business. It doesn't say ethanol is going away. It basically says there is a base business out there that's about nine point seven percent of expected. Uh, gasoline demand, projected gasoline demand, and so that business hasn't been wiped out. So those people that have invested um, millions or tens of millions or hundreds of millions of dollars in the ethanol space uh, can can continue to have a market. It's just that they're not going to get any, uh, a federally mandated windfall uh, from a flawed law. Uh, so this law fixes that. So I'm hopeful that we can have some sit down, and have some rational conversations with Farm State. Uh, representatives and let them know, really, if anything, this provides stability uh, to their constituents and not uh, not a risk. And that, that's Rather than these ever-fluctuating numbers coming from the EPA. Correct, exactly. Because I'll tell you, if I'm a core-based core ethanol producer, I have to worry what the EPA is going to do to me each year by trying to jam in these uneconomic and, and non-technologically available uh, other fuels like cellulosic and advanced biofuel. There will be a market for those someday, uh, but, but what happens is EPA forces all those fuels into the market when they don't exist, and so that typically winds up displacing corn-based ethanol. So if I were a farmer from a corn state or was a, a corn-based ethanol operator, I would want this law to go into effect because it provides the stability. Yeah. Well, I hope it goes through. I'm excited about uh, the possibility of it, and I was, as I said, I was very excited uh, to see it. Now, the Democrats you've got of your original co-sponsors, three are Democrats, three are Republicans. Of your newer co newer sponsors, co-sponsors, what what are you, what kind of response are you getting from the Democrats who tend to support government programs more than Republicans, and and who tend to be quote unquote green more than Republicans? Well, we have um, we've had good responses, and the responses typically follow along the lines of 
the ethanol mandates in the 2007 law have been bad for my constituents because they're hurting their engines, particularly those that come from um, rec- uh, fishing states and sportsman mm-hmm. states. And because the, the higher blends of ethanol hurt snowmobiles and uh, boats and things like that and, and, and motorcycles. And so those constituents have been pretty... Uh, uh, pretty agitated with all of us, whether we're Democrat or Republican, and so they've been supportive of this. And there are also some that that um, want to allow uh, advanced uh, ethanols to have a have a chance to survive. Well, this law <clears throat> this law doesn't get in the way of the technology if it develops. So I, they they look to this to be a pretty good solution moving forward. And we've got a great group of outside supporters. I don't know if you, you're aware of this, but the American Sports Fishing Association, uh, Boats U.S., Competitive Enterprise Institute, the Environmental Working Group, the International Snowmobiles Manufacturers Association, and just you know, Milk Producers uh, Council, the far, egg farmers. It just goes on and on and on uh, because it well, it's, it has a broad base of support because this. 2007 law has been a problem for numerous parts of the economy and thereby hurting our consumers. Yeah. We're out of time. It's fascinating. I I wish you the best on it. We'll follow it. We've been talking with Representative Bill Flores from Texas, and uh, thank you for your time today and wish you the best of luck on this bill. Okay. Thank you very much. We'll follow up in a couple of weeks, and also we need to talk about ozone sometime. Well, I'd love to do that as well. Thank you so much. We'll be right back on America's Voice Friend. Watchdog is a term given an organization like the United States Justice Foundation, which since 1979 has been watching out and, when necessary, taking the appropriate action from testifying to litigating to protect our constitutional rights. USJF, a nonprofit organization, is nationally recognized not only as a watchdog, but many in the government as well as those involved in legal cases have also called the USJF a bulldog for the tenacious approach in their presentation and proof of what is right. Find out more at www.usjf.net. Support USJF as they support you. Buzz off with Lawyer Liz. Join me each week, Wednesdays at 2 o'clock, as we talk drones, Internet of Things, and technology. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome to our closing segment of this week's edition of America's Voice for Energy. To wrap up our conversation this week about the EPA's 2017 ethanol requirements, I'm honored to have with us Chet Thompson, who is the president of the American Fuel and Petrochemical Manufacturers. Today we've talked about many angles of this, but we haven't yet addressed the impact of the, first off, the renewable fuel standard or the ethanol mandate on refiners and specifically the EPA's actions on March 18th announcing uh, their 2017 requirements. So, Chet, thanks for taking time out of your busy day to talk to us about this important subject. Well, thanks for having me. I'm glad to be here. So let's start with what is the refiner's view on the renewable fuel standard overall? Well, you know, we're, we're certainly troubled by the uh, what we call the RFS, the Renewable Fuel Standard, and we believe, you know, that it's bad public policy. Uh, we don't believe that the United States government 
should be creating fuel mandates, telling consumers what kind of fuels they should or should not be putting in their tanks. Amen. And so we, be, we believe at this point uh, that year after year, you know, we get these horrible rules come out. And so we think the time has come for Congress to repeal the RFS, and, or at the very least, you know, to take some steps to, to uh, meaningfully reform it. Yeah, well, my guest, last guest was uh, Congressman Bill Flores from Texas, who is the author of the new bill that was just really announced on May 10th that caps the RFS, uh, the, the blend of ethanol, at 9.7%. Do you feel that's a step in the right direction? It absolutely is a step in the right direction. Uh, we greatly appreciate what uh, Congressman Flores is doing. Uh, along with the co-sponsors, and you know, importantly, it's you know that is a bipartisan me- bill, and so we think it's it's definitely a step in the right direction. We certainly, you know, would prefer full repeal. We recognize uh, that that doesn't seem to be in the cards in the short term. So, yeah, I don't, least... I don't think there's a political will there for that. No, not not in the short term, there isn't. Um, although we we're starting to see cracks. I mean, I think more and more people realize that this is bad policy. And, you know, the underlying assumptions that was sold to the American people why we needed the RFS, people are starting to realize that to the extent it was ever true, it's, it's not true now, meaning, one, when it was first uh, adopted back in 2005, there was a sense that, you know, we were so dependent on foreign oil that we needed uh, something to change. We needed to create more domestic sources. Certainly with the shale revolution, those days are long gone. Yeah, uh, we're producing more in this country than we've had in decades. And the second assumption was the fact that, you know, more ethanol and ethanol mandate would be good for the environment. And, you know, study after study is showing that that is not the case, that ethanol mandates, you know, as opposed to just ethanol, but these increasing ethanol mandates are not good for the environment. So I'm, uh, what I'm seeing is that more people are realizing this is bad policy uh, and so, you know, we remain optimistic that in time this is going to be repealed. But in the meantime, we think what what uh, Congressman Flores, through his leadership, is is trying to do is is to ease the pain to consumers by limiting the ethanol to what we call the blend wall, to at least not driving through that, uh, because it's the it's the consumers at the end who are going to be hurt by these policies. Yeah, so help for our listeners who maybe don't really understand this issue. How are consumers ultimately hurt by this policy? Well, you know, for, for starters, uh, in order to comply um, with, with the RFS, it's, you know, refiners have to go out and buy credits, and they have to buy credits from the biofuels industry. Um, so the, these credits basically raise the price of fuel at the wait pump. a minute, wait a minute. Uh, help me understand. I mean, I really pretty much understand this. But for our listeners, why are you having to buy credits? Well, the way the RFS works, it's it's the refiners, our, my members, that are responsible to to actually ensure that all this biofuel that the the RFS requires be blended into transportation fuel. It's our responsibility to ensure that happens. And they've created a structure that how this happens is we have to buy credits that, in essence, you know, represents a gallon of renewable fuel, and we have to buy those credits and then surrender them to the agency. But these credits basically, uh, well, the, the, the price for doing business, the price for this program is higher cost at the pump. 
And, and so that's yeah. why this is bad for consumers. It's also bad for consumers because, you know, most automobiles on the market today can't handle uh, ethanol blends greater than 10%, right? And right. so, you know, the more and more this is pushed on to folks, uh, it's pushed onto the motorcycle communities, what we call E0, pure, uh, pure gasoline, is, is disappearing. Um, and this is causing real concern with boaters and, and motorcyclists and others. So the consumers, at the end of the day, are certainly sharing in, in the pain of this program. Now, the, the advocates of ethanol, which I realize are fewer and fewer all the time, uh, my first guess was John DeChico from the University of Michigan uh, Energy Institute, and he's an environmentalist and admitted greenie, and he said, I, he, we talked about CO2 emissions, and he told me that, uh, you know, many of his green friends have, have abandoned ethanol, but the ethanol proponents will say that ethanol uh, lowers the price of gasoline. I assume you've heard that argument. Well, I've heard folks, you know, suggest that, yes, it's, you know, right now, at this moment, uh, a gallon of ethanol costs more than a gallon of gasoline. So the mere fact of blending ethanol into gasoline today, uh, it, it causes the price to go up. That's that's just a factual, uh, you know, that, that's factual. That can be, you know, documented. Uh-huh. Uh, and then, you know, and then you add in all of the other costs uh, of the program, and it's absolutely raising the costs of gasoline at the pump. Okay, so I've got a friend who's sort of an ethanol advocate. He was involved in setting up some of the original ethanol refineries in New Mexico and West Texas. And he says um, that he agrees that the policy all needs to be changed, but he says that ethanol is a, a good oxygenate or an or a, um, octane booster. And because of that, Regardless of even if this law went away, there would always be a demand, uh, uh, not an inflated demand like the, the RFS requires, but there would always be a demand for ethanol. Is that accurate in your opinion? I think it is accurate. And let me be clear about something because I think it's important to what I'm saying. Um, I have lots of members uh, that are, you know, that produce ethanol. So we are not anti-ethanol. We're, we're anti-ethanol, escalating ethanol mandates, okay? And so, yeah. it, you know, ethanol is a good oxygenate. And so certainly if this mandate went away, ethanol would not go away, and we would have no problem with that. What we have a problem with is when this mandate now is getting to a, a point where there's no place for it to go. And if it's no place for it to go, it ends up driving up uh, artificially the cost, you know, of our products. And so it's the mandate as opposed to the actual ethanol that we have that we have issues with. Yeah, I would agree. So it with won't you. go I would, away. I, I would feel the away. same thing. Yeah, I feel the same way with solar and wind. I'm not opposed to solar or wind, and there are there are places where particularly solar is is really the best option. And I, I like to point out that, for example, every remote well site has a solar panel and a car battery and a computer attached to it. So, so I'm not opposed to that. I'm opposed to the government mandates artificially uh, propping up uh, an industry or a market that could not survive in the free market. That's absolutely correct. And, and it, you know, at the end of the day, if the consumers uh, want this product, it, it will be there. And, you know, we're a free market organization. So, you know, uh, if it can compete on its own, uh, fabulous. And like I said, a lot of my members – 
uh, are in the ethanol business and and do you know buy and sell it and we use it for an oxygenate and that's and that's that's perfectly okay but the government uh, should not mandate you know you know levels that that our that our transportation sector can't handle at the moment yeah and that's that's where we're looking at some revisions and changes in this policy or at least hopefully looking at some revisions what do you feel about this and, that, and that's what let me just say that, that that's why congressman flores if, if your listeners haven't picked up on it already that's why we get to 9.7 percent because basically what we're saying is is that you know it would leave e10 which is what most gasoline is today um, it mm-hmm. would that would it would leave that um, you know on the books but it would prevent EPA to, from doing what it's doing now, which is taking the percentage that's being mandated above that threshold. So, so that means that right now if every, every drop of gasoline had 10% of ethanol in it, the Flores bill would allow that to happen. But what it won't allow to happen is to, is to go above that because there's no place for the fuel to go. We've got about three minutes left, Chet. And can you explain to our listeners how kind of the flaw in this rule as it was written that it requires more and more gallons of ethanol be blended in? Well, let me, yeah, let me, let me try to find something, you know, positive so uh, your listeners don't think I'm always negative, and that is, you know, <laughs> some parts of what EPA, you know, did in this, in this proposed rule, um, you know, some parts of it are good, meaning that the, at least the, the agency recognizes that, that it has the authority to reduce these volumes. Um, certainly we appreciate that because actually if left to, you know, its own devices, there would be more, a higher volume requirement. So EPA recognized it's not doable, and they use their authority to reduce that volume. They recognize the things that we're saying are true. They recognize there's something called the blend wall, and they recognize that a lot of automobiles and motorcycles and boats can't handle this. So all that's good. But what they yeah. did that's not so good is they say, well, nevertheless, we're still going to set a volume level that's above that. Um, above that meaning that would require us to, to have more than 10% enter into the transportation sector. That's what they get wrong. Um, and, you know, certainly they're, they're trying to promote the growth of this sector, but in the meantime, it's my members and consumers that pay, you know, that have to, uh, you know, um, you know, to feel the pain, if you will, because it's pain at the pump, uh, and it's pain for our members who are out there paying higher and higher prices for these credits to do business. Yeah, and I think the credits, the whole credit thing is complicated. Yeah, and it's complicated, and, you know, it's, it's fraught with danger. There, there's a lots of uh, Ill, illegal credits that are on the market. You know, EPA is finding more and more people that are gaming the system. Um, there are lots of folks uh, that are just, uh, you know, folks from New York, from Wall Street, that are buying and selling these credits and raising the prices. I mean, the, the, this is by far uh, the worst policy in the space is the renewable fuel standard. It's just terrible policy and needs to go away. Yeah. Well, we're out of time, Chet Thompson, president of the American Fuel and Petrochemical Manufacturers. You've done a great job explaining it for us, and I, I think we've put together today a really great show for folks to understand what the EPA has done, what the renewable fuel standard is, and uh, we appreciate you taking your time to join us today. Well, I'm, I'm happy to be there, and I ask all your listeners, you know, call your representatives and tell them it's time to repeal this program. That's a good way to end the show with that charge. Thank you so much, and we'll be back next week with another edition of America's Voice for Energy.
You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening.